It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down Welcome back to American Loser, guys. It is the podcast that puts the spotlight firmly on second place with the uh, the first of our Halloween-themed episodes, Dad. It's going to be cool. It's spooky. I'm, I'm a little quivered here already. We got a couple good ones. I'm excited about that. Real quick, just want to say a shout out to the founding losers over on Patreon who, uh, for just five bucks a month, have gotten all the bonus content. Reviews are very good. Everyone says that we kick it up a notch a little bit on Patreon. Not that we mail it in or phone it in here for you guys on the free episodes, but the Patreon, you get what you pay for over there, baby. All right. We're giving you gold. So this gives us opportunity to delve a little deeper into loserdom. It sure does. And uh, of course, where are we other than at a shared universe podcast studio in Eatontown, New Jersey? Mike and Ming taking great care of us as always. Ming behind the ones and twos today, actually. See Kahuna that? is Kahuna's eating and praying and loving. He's on a, a journey of self-discovery. Yeah, I think uh, Kahuna's got a love connection on <laughs> On this fine fall day. Very much could be. So, uh, Ming, thank you for opening up the studio for us. I appreciate you, dude. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he is ditch podcast to go on Tinder dates. So. That's- <laughs> it's, it's, this is a fact. This is a fact. Kahuna, good for you, buddy. Live, live your life. All right, Kahuns. Well, uh, and, and by the way, if you want to know his real name, we give it away on the Patreon almost regularly. So that's another <laughs> added feature that's over right. at the Founding Losers. By the way, I think we're three people away from hitting 56. So that means the people who've been with us since day one, when we hit 56, we have some merch coming your way. It's a thank you for being down with uh, the loserdom, if you will, from day one. The founding losers. That's half the battle, man. So uh, all that aside, though, we love the people who listen to the show. Uh, The Patreon helps us keep uh, the bills going. So, all right, we get to continue to own uh, or have a stake in the friendship uh, of Ming and Mike. That's right. Um, Got to pay for that friendship. Exactly. It's uh, a... but I'm excited because we're going to do this little Halloween themed action here today. Uh, we're recording on a glorious Saturday. This will be coming out on Lou's Day. And um, interestingly enough, Dad, uh, we found when we were diving into this topic, we found some good stuff right up front. And then the more you dig, as we've proven on every possible facet of uh, American <laughs> history, there's a lot of weird shit going on. Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, interceptions and cross pollination here going on. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and dive into it then, man. This one's going to be great. Uh, the pictures alone for this are absolutely mind-blowing. I will put it up over on the American Loser Podcast Instagram. But uh, let's get going with the first of our Halloween episodes here. On September 8th, 1934, in the waters between Havana and New York City, a horrifying disaster is taking place. An ocean liner was off the coast of New Jersey. You guessed it, New Jersey. We didn't plan this one, Pat Dowden, okay? No, it's- <laughs> didn't have to search Far and wide for uh, the New Jersey connection this time around. Well, wait till you see the picture on this one. I think some people already might know the story of what we're about to talk about here. But uh, just off the coast of the the shoreline, um, people are seeing some terrible stuff going on. Uh, Not much hope in sight. The horrified crew and passengers of this ocean liner are going to share the tragedy uh, of the night as a fire. And ensuing terrors are going to claim roughly one out of four lives on board the gruesome calamity known as the SS Morrow Castle. 
Did you know about this before we started tackling the site? I knew that there was a ship that um, came up, you know, was grounded or beached um, on the Jersey Shore. I wasn't exactly sure where. I thought it was one of the major uh, players of the Jersey uh, playland, mm-hmm. <laughs> known as the Jersey Shore, down shore. Um, but I started getting into some of the details here, and there was a lot of uh, holy shit moments for sure. Holy shit is an understatement, Dad. That's a, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ming's got a picture brought up of it uh, over here, the, the Moral Castle. Absolutely horrifying to look at. Literally kind of a ghost ship. Okay, so we covered the Mary Celeste, and we've done a couple other uh, uh, disasters at sea, if you will. But this one spooked the hell out of me, and uh, apparently there's a lot more to it as well. So in order to give you the, the background of it, if you will, here we go. Uh, we know how it's going to end. It's not going to be good, right? But as part of a government-backed update, you know, oh, that's good, right? Get the government involved. Uh, a government-backed update to its ocean liners. The SS Morrow Castle was built and later christened in 1930. So that's the time frame we're dealing with here. She was adorned with many modern marvels. Uh, naval engineers got involved. And also uh, the turbines that were in or the generators, if you will, were made by the General Electric Company. So it's not just refrigerators, guys. Okay, GE can do a little bit of everything. Oh, they're big time. They're big time. Actually, this was uh, technically known as a TEL or a turbo electric liner. So this was uh, cutting edge uh, technology uh, on the forefront here. This was uh, the pride of the fleet, if you will, for the Ward line, mm-hmm. which was the uh, the uh, ship's company that uh, um, had had this uh, SS Morrow Castle built. Well, the SS Morrow uh, Morrow Castle, if you will was uh, one of two. So it's important, like you said, this, uh, they pretty much everything gets outfitted for the Ward line. That's the people that own the company, if you will, which, by the way, made most of its money from commerce going from Havana, Cuba to New York City. That plays a very important role in the story. Mm-hmm. But due to the uh, routine nature of the ship's path, uh, both ships were designed and named because there was two that came out. They made two ships. They were named after Cuban landmarks. So you had the uh, SS Oriente, after the uh, Oriente province of Cuba, oddly where Castro and his brother were born. And uh, then, of course, the infamous, uh, soon to be disastrous SS Morro Castle was named after a stone fort and a lighthouse that the sailors used to see when they were coming into Cuba. So, yeah, now this wasn't the uh, the only ships that were owned by the Ward Line. The Ward Line was a very large uh, American uh, cruise liner. And they did um, you know passenger service back and forth to Cuba and uh, also to Mexico. And it, they weren't Johnny come lately's. They've been going on. They've been going at this um, since like the 1850s, 1860s. So they had a long history with uh, passenger service and uh, supply service to um, Cuba and Mexico. And then they also had a government contract as a mail service, which was- That's was where all the money huge. comes yeah. in, baby. You want to talk so about the post office? You get that government contract, you're- you're doing well. <laughs> well, this is not um, a, a lot going on over here to unpack a little bit. Uh, the ships are quite impressive, by the way, uh, boasting a length of 508 feet long. For comparison's sake, my ship, the USS Kearney, was uh, a.k.a. Guided Missile Destroyer 64, was known as 505 feet of American fighting steel. Hoorah. So this ocean liner, bigger than my boat. So, uh, like we said, both ships are supplied with these GE uh, twin turbo generators, and the ships are designed to have a lavish luxury, kind of a first class area for these people that are coming on here, which begs the question, Dad, did we learn nothing from the Titanic? Yeah, this <laughs> this was, uh, you know, not not so much the counterpart of the Titanic, but the Titanic has already gone down. So, mm-hmm. we we should have learned lessons from the Titanic that we didn't. 
But uh, this was definitely a luxury liner. This was uh, this wasn't shuttling just the mail and uh, and cattle or whatever back and forth to Cuba. This was. Um, it became known. Some people would quote it as the the millionaire's yacht. That uh, um, if you if you're going to uh, take a cruise to uh, to Cuba, you definitely want to go on the SS Morro Castle or its uh, sister ship, the Oriente. Well, uh, another interesting thing here in terms of the Zeitgeist, which, by the way, for those who don't know, is German for spirit of the times, and is one of the two words we taught my father on this show. <laughs> That's it, right? I got but, some learning now. <laughs> Well, uh, the ship is sometimes compared to the Titanic, but its disaster is far, far away from its maiden journey, okay, its maiden voyage. Uh, the boat's actually a bit of a workhorse. So the original maiden voyage for the SS Morro Castle was August 23rd, 1930. And the ship, like I said, absolute workhorse, both ships, the Oriente and the Morro Castle. Um, they're actually very popular. Like you were saying, Dad, too, this is uh, definitely a, a luxury liner kind of a thing. If you drop the name of that ship, uh, people are like, oh, look at you. All right. Carnival Cruise Lines over here. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're going uh, first class for sure. Not bad on that one. Even if you're not going first class, just to be on that ship, you're, you're, at least you're with the hoi polloi. You're with the, the big timers. Well, also, again, it's 1930s time frame here. So there's a little thing going on called prohibition in the old states. And uh, a pretty much it's great because now if you're going from Havana to – and by the way, the idea of a booze cruise is not a new concept. Okay. These guys. Yeah. Yeah. Since we've had ships and we've had booze, I think we've had booze cruises. Exactly. Uh, and there's a reason why drunken sailors are such a, uh, a stereotype. But yeah, the uh, the boats are going back and forth here and it was affordable during the Depression. You know, affordable if you had a little money to begin with. Um, and you could also booze heavy during the, the trip during Prohibition. So if you're in, quote, international waters or whatever you want to say. Uh, you can actually enjoy yourself a little bit more lavishly um, than you normally would, which means that uh, you have to quit. The idea of you have to quit drinking because you're in New York City. All right, guys, we're back in New York. Drinking's done. Right. But you as know. soon as you get into international waters, mm -hmm. uh, just outside the harbor, basically, uh, uh, you know, the drinking lamp is now lit. Is Cuba known for having any sort of an alcohol vibe <laughs> yeah. to it? Yeah. I think rum might be uh, kind of a Cuba Libre is uh, <laughs> rum and coke and a, a little bit of lime. So, uh, uh, you know, that's uh, that's a mainstay for sure. So, and see? it's cheap. So you got a lot of it and it doesn't cost you a whole lot of money and you can't get it legally back home. So party yeah. hardy. We can either go to Cuba and get something fantastic, right, uh, that, that was made by, you know, almost a farm to table kind of a booze. Mm -hmm. Or we can hope that the guy who makes uh, bathtub gin uh, in his lead, right. you know, in his lead sink or something like that is hopefully we don't doesn't die from that doesn't poison me that uh, he gets it right. Well, uh, the shit doesn't really hit the fan for the SS Moral Cast because, like you said, Dad, state-of-the-art ship, um, working its ass off, working well, you know, the kind of the pride of the fleet in that way. Um, but uh, the shit's going to hit the fan September 5th, 1934, the start of her final voyage. So, Yeah, it. and again, just the zeitgeist that we got to keep in mind now, Prohibition has been going on for quite some time. Prohibition started uh, with an act of Congress in uh, 1920. Uh, prohibition, Act. yeah, prohibition actually ends in 1933, and now we're going on this uh, trip, this homeward bound trip of the Morrill Castle in 1934. So prohibition is over. There, would, it's still a party ship, no doubt. And in its early days, its first four years of service, as you said, it was launched in 1930. So 
the immediate draw to that is you, it's a party ship. You get on this, you can have a great time. Cuba is being developed as a, a place to go, a, a winter haven, if you will, that you can go down there and party hardy. You can drink all you want. You don't have to worry about any of these uh, U.S. laws. Um, Again, and this is a first class thing that uh, the Morrill Castle set speed records that um, you could go from Manhattan to Havana. It sets a speed record of 58 hours and 40 minutes, which was like zipping. And again, we're before a really commercial aircraft. So it's, you're not going to fly into uh, Havana. You're, if you're going to get there, you're going by boat. So, well, for reference, by the way, when you're talking about speed and time and everything like that, um, for reference, the top speed of the SS Morrill Castle is 20 knots which roughly converts to just under 24 miles per hour. So uh, it gets a little – that's another important thing for later when we start mentioning some yeah, of the, the inclement weather. Yeah, but for a ship this size, it's, it's, that's doing, that's doing really well. Oh, yeah. Well. Keep kids alive, drive 25. That's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so you're cruising through a residential neighborhood uh, at the appropriate speed. You might think you're going a little bit slow there, but on a giant boat, yeah. It's, right. Uh, <laughs> going through the ocean on, on a huge uh, luxury liner, that's, that's really zipping along. And a weekly, the, the, the SS Morrow, this was a weekly thing. You would, you would leave New York, um, spend maybe uh, uh, two and a half days underway, arrive in Havana. You could spend the night, a couple of nights down in Havana at a luxury hotel if you chose, and then uh, two and a half days back, and uh, mm-hmm. you're back in New York. So you could have a, a one-week getaway. And it was only going to cost you about 140 bucks for an inside cabin, which well, today just for inflation, yeah. Lawrence. Come on. Well, again, we're we're also in the middle of uh, the depression, so um, you know you, you you factor prohibition with the depression. Um, you know how how bad do you want to go drinking? But uh, today's money, that 140 dollars for an inside cabin would be about 2,700 dollars. So. A one-week cruise for twenty-seven hundred. Get to drink a lot of rum. You know, you're factoring things out here. Yeah, you know, you got. Uh, and it's, again, it's a short trip, so you can do that, and uh, you know, just tell your wife it was a business trip. Yeah, you go. There you so, go. The good old days when a man could have a side family. So, <laughs> but uh, again, like we said, uh, September fifth, nineteen thirty-four, the start of this. Uh, Final voyage, if you will. But uh, we're going to – Lemony Snicket had it right. This is a series of unfortunate events. All right. This is – the shit hits the fan pretty abruptly, uh, but it's slow. It's a slow build. But then once it's gone, there's no coming back, man. So uh, first of all, we got to talk about the weather. All signs during this trip back from Havana to New York City are pointing towards a nor'easter hitting. Okay. Uh, which wasn't the end of the world, but certainly not a, a sign of luck. You don't hope for a nor'easter. Right, right. You can uh, get through that. But um, then on September 7th, the shit's starting to pile on a little bit here, old uh, old SS Morrow folks. So it comes on like you wouldn't believe. The weather was extremely nasty, heavy rains and heavy winds. Uh, the waves are getting extra choppy, and most of the people don't quite feel like being in party mode. So uh, they most nights they're wrapping it up early and – you know, going into their cabins and stuff like that. So on a booze cruise, it's it's kind of like uh, maybe it's I only went to Vegas once, but I can tell you the flight back from Vegas, that 45 minutes we were just sitting there at the airport. It is the most depressing. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, what did I? What happened? What? <laughs> I'll never drink again. <laughs> it was I was there for 96 hours. <laughs> yeah. How did I do this? But yeah, so imagine that now you're on the, the coming back from the booze cruise. 
And, uh, you know, you're you're very close to New York, by the way. They're towards the, the tail end of this journey. Yeah, you're hoping to get it back. I mean, you're you're um, heading into a nor'easter. But what's chasing you also, there's uh, bad weather to the south coming up the coastline. There's a hurricane coming up. So they're trying to outrace a hurricane coming up from behind. But you're also heading directly into the teeth of a nor'easter. So... Uh, if we can make it back to New York, we can get it, get around Sandy Hook and back into um, <laughs> New York Harbor. We'll, we'll be we'll be fine. But uh, you know, it's uh, a race against time, if you will, and, and against the weather. Yeah, but this is again, the, this is a pretty experienced crew. Um, this is a regular you know haul for them. It's not like anything's too too out of the ordinary. Just some shit weather. That's yeah, all. this is a, this was a weekly thing, so it, it's 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 a routine um, back and forth, and we'll talk about that a, a little bit later too about how some of the crew didn't quite know the routine. <laughs> well. Uh, so you got bad weather. You're trying to. You got two different storm fronts potentially hitting you here. You're just trying to get back into New York uh, Harbor, right? And then, boom, the captain dies. Yep. Oops. On the night, a uh, harbinger of doom for sure. Especially, you know, uh, uh, the idea of what we talked about the nautical um, curses, if you will, out there for like the Mary Celeste and all that other stuff. Well, not really a great sign of. Uh, it's no rabbit's foot. That on the night of September seventh, <laughs> right. the ship's captain, a guy by the name of Captain Robert Wilmot had dinner delivered to his quarters. He then later complains of a stomach ache. His buddies told him to quit being a pussy about it and just walk it off. That's right. All right. And, uh, Man up. Cowboy yep. up, Cap. Boom. Heart attack. Dude drops dead. So the ship's command is now falling from the dead captain, Robert Wilmot, into the hands of uh, Mr. William Warms, the Morrow Castle's chief officer. Yeah. Now, when Captain uh, Wilmot... Um, Dies. I mean, that night he didn't go to the final uh, banquet either. I mean, when when uh, you read that, you know, he went to uh, have his evening meal delivered to his cabin. That's going against all normal protocol because the final night of the, of a cruise um, to be invited to the captain's table that's that's big time too. That uh, you're you're really putting on the the feedback. You're really putting on the the glorious consumption of uh, food and, and alcohol on that final that final banquet night. So he's, Gotta tell he's you. and he's checking out early. So it wasn't you know he was definitely feeling poorly for it's, for sure to uh, to beg off of that. And he he was known as uh, you know a very amicable party like guy. Like make sure that all the passengers are. I picture happy. Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> yeah, a, right. Everybody's happy on my car. Hey, you my scratched ship. my anchor. That's right. Well, you had a rough weather. Uh, you got a dead captain. How much worse is this going to possibly get? We were saying this earlier, um, combined with your new captaincy, the shitty weather, and now these winds are hitting at 30 miles per hour. So it's not much fun being on board the boat at this point. Uh, for anyone who would be complaining about the weather, though, that's not going to be the only thing they have to complain about shortly. Right. I mentioned it earlier. The SS Morro Castle, top speed of 20 knots, like we said, adjusted, um, you know, converted, about 24 miles per hour. That would mean that the wind is now going at least six miles per hour faster than the ship itself. So it's not fun being afloat right now. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, you're moving into a headwind. Um, you're moving. You're making a pretty good clip um, forward progress, but you're also going into a headwind. So the the winds are feeling like you know sticking your head out the out the car window. Maybe the car is only doing 24, but when the 30 mile an hour window is coming at you, yep. And now all of a sudden that. Doubles, so at least so. Yeah, there's there's definitely a little breeze felt um, aboard the SS Morro Castle. 
Well, uh, now the shit has already we've got uh, we've set the table for uh, the shit storm that's coming here. Uh, but at 2.50 a.m. on September the 8th, the Morrow Castle is off the coast of the Jersey Shore, specifically about uh, eight nautical miles away from Long Beach Island, which uh, the, I think that's the people that actually told me about this, I think, are the Seahatsis. But it was Mr. <laughs> Anthony that, right. down by Beach Haven Fishery. There you go. But uh, yeah, for the, for our listeners that are not quite attuned into uh, New Jersey geography, Long Beach Island is about twenty miles, twenty five miles north of Atlantic City, and the ship's got about another seventy five miles to make it into New York City. So mm-hmm. they're they're close to home. I mean, uh, they're almost there when you're considering that they came from Havana, Cuba. They're they're on the on the final leg of this. Uh, it's like journey. they always say, um, you, most car accidents happen within uh, what, like two miles of your house. Yeah, good old Grandpa Marty can drive from uh, Florida all the way up to uh, Wayne and then pulls over to make a safe phone call and gets hit by a car. <laughs> right, <laughs> he lived. He lived. Um, but yeah, so uh, a fire breaks out in a storage locker on board the ship, and uh, things are moving fast, man. Uh, within twenty minutes, the ill-fated Morro Castle is now up in flames. Okay, so within 20 minutes of this fire breaking out, it just spreads like crazy. So Captain Warms, the new captain of the boat, is uh, made aware of the fire. And you want to talk about geography, Dad. You did a great job explaining that one because they're so close to home. It actually affects their tactics of how they're going to try to uh, handle this disaster. So Captain Warms is now aware of the fire. And he has the idea that he's going to maybe attempt to beach the ship in hopes of getting help from the people of Long Beach Island. Uh, but abandoning the ship and getting people safely to the lifeboats is making that impossible. What are you going to do? We're going to we're going to crash this boat onto the shore and then try to get everybody off. Or are we going to try to get people off while we're beaching? It's a lot going on. And again, twenty minutes is. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what. Let's look at this right now. It is twenty-one minutes into the podcast right now. From the time that this started to right now, that is all it took for the entire ship to almost be engulfed be in flames. flames right now. Yeah, and there was a number of reasons for that, but uh, you know. Uh, Warms is trying to outrun this thing that he's figuring, well, if I just keep going, keep pressing, keep pressing, we'll get back to New York. And, we'll, and you know, even with this fire, I mean, the reports first come to him that there's a fire. But uh, initially, uh, those reports are basically ignored. Um, and what was one of the things that was working against him and why the ship went up so quickly is that um, we're back in the days of pre-air conditioning. So the ship was not fully air conditioned. It was conditioned, but it was like um, uh, wind ducts, air ducts are flowing through this. So as the ship is moving forward, this air is flowing through these various air ducts, cooling the ship down, but it's also f- fanning the flame. So you're, you're um, taking the fire that started amidships and now it's being fanned by your head speed of uh, 24, 20 knots, plus the winds coming at you, a headwind. So it's got a California so, wildfire kind right. of a thing so going on. This, this no fire is just blowing from the front of the ship to the back of the ship in, in no time. And the ship is full of uh, flammable materials. I don't know if we want to get into that now or uh, I'm going to set on. you up for success with that uh, okay, one. We're going right. to tell the story, then we can get to the conspiracy okay. spot. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you're good. Um so, like we said, this fire has broken out in a storage locker, uh, and they are yeah. It was the right. It was a locker or closet within the writing room that the first class passengers had the ability to go into a special room that you could sit down and write letters from home and stuff. But apparently, there was some stuff in the in the closet that shouldn't have been. 
bastards. Some some blogger burned the entire ship down. Yes, that's it. That's <laughs> but, it. Uh, well, passengers and crew are alike by being both caught off guard by this news. The ship's on fire, but hey, man, it, at least we can see what we're dealing with, right? Nope. Boom. Within 20 minutes of that fire starting, it's now about 3.10 a.m. The bars in New York City are closing and the <laughs> SS Morrow Castle is now pitch black because the ship has lost electrical power. So the fire spread through, burned up the electrical cables that were, uh, I mean, you, you want to talk about it. It's, it's great. It's a... Uh, Imagine we're trying to do a podcast and then, uh, you know, interestingly enough, Ming, once the, the place was on fire while we were here, <laughs> um, but then you lose power halfway through. So these guys are fighting this thing in it, the, any attempt at putting the fire out or doing any sort of damage control is now being done in pitch black because there's nothing and it's nighttime. OK, so a little bit of a, a harrowing sequence there. There's no emergency lights that are kicking back on. The only light you're getting is from the fire. So if you can see what you're doing, you're in danger. But uh, the ship winds up uh, losing power. Like we said, the fire spreads, uh, continues to go so. And uh, by the way, when you lose power on the ship, that also forces radio silence uh, from the crew who is only able to get out one single SOS message. So. They, that was it. You got one SOS message out there. Boom. Did you butt dial or did you, you know, right, right. don't know what the deal is, but they got no opportunity now. It's over. And there was radio silence after that. So was that a false message or was that a real deal or what? What? Nobody really knows. Well, we get into that later, yeah. too, because there was uh, the, the rescue efforts are almost worse than the disaster itself. Right. But uh, now so you got no power. The boat's on fire. But, hey, at least you can steer the ship, right? At least we can still try to make it you know, to a little bit closer to land or something. Nope. Boom. Gone. We've now lost steering ability. It's gone. Okay. The fire is doing critical damage to the ship and it's doing it very quickly. So uh, now let's get to the people though, because now you're pretty much fucked. You are now at the mercy of the ocean. You've right. lost all power. You've lost uh, uh, any electric. So you can't see anything. You can't do anything. You are pretty much stuck on a, uh, a floating inferno. So the... Two groups that are going to start congregating on the ship, the uh, the stern of the boat, a.k.a. the back, okay, for people that don't know nautical terms. Uh, that's where most of the passengers wind up. And then there's the uh, the folkstall, all right, which is the front of the boat, which is where I used to hang out on the USS Carney because nobody would bug you up there. So you could go disappear for a good hour and just look at the ocean. Um, but that's where the crew is going to wind up all gathering. So as the flames and the smoke continue to grow, decisions are going to have to be made. Uh, do I tough it out on this increasingly hot and smoky boat or do I go full screaming Simpsons guy and dive out the window? So, yeah, I mean, it's, that's a that's a terrible choice to make. And you, you burn to death or, you know, jump in the water and hope, hope for the best. Yeah. And you don't know. It's pitch black, too. So I don't even know if they're right. able to see so how close they are to jumping the, into. Yeah, it's uh, it's gross. So you're trying to get these people out on the lifeboats here. I got the numbers for that in a second. Oh, boy, did they fuck that one up. Um but as the, uh, the people are making these decisions now, like you said, Dad, temperatures uh, are getting real bad on board. OK, the uh, it, it's literally uh, it's hot to the touch. People are uh, moving around because their feet are starting to burn up a little bit. It's, uh, uh, you know, it, the boat's on fire. OK, yeah. <laughs> but uh, lifeboats are attempting to be manned, but it's hardly safer on the lifeboat with these, again, 30 mile per hour nor'eastern winds and high waves. Uh, so, I mean. You're stuck. Like, do I jump into the abyss? Do I try to rough it out on a lifeboat when we're already struggling in this giant ship that it is? And you got to make these decisions fast because, like we said, it's all going down in about the span of a half hour. So 
You want to talk about the, you know a guy who took Ambien and just uh, sleeping through all this? Uh, not tonight, buddy. Yeah, not a, not a good night to be uh, doing the no dose. Well, uh, no, the, sleep, the <laughs> no sleepies, dose. the sleepies, I should say. I had melatonin earlier. So. Yeah. Um, well, temperatures are bad. It's time to time to make your decisions here. Another issue uh, is going to happen now with people jumping for their lives. So some folks are jumping without life jackets, which is ill-advised because you don't know. I mean, again, nautical miles, it sounds close because we think of miles as in a car where you're like, oh, it's like t- five miles away. I can be there in 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, swimming is a little <laughs> bit – you appreciate distance a little bit more when it's in swimming. In a nor'easter with uh, um, high waves and, and everything else, just bad weather, everything else. You don't know what the heck you're jumping into. It's pitch black. You can't see. Uh, it's it's not a good situation by any stretch of the imagination. Well, uh, another thing that we should probably point out, too, is that just because you had a life vest on and now you're making the jump doesn't mean it's going to go any easier for you. The way that people are landing and the height that they're coming off the ship and the roughness of the waves, people are literally jumping into the water, either getting knocked unconscious by their own uh, life preserver or it's snapping their fucking neck and they're dying upon impact. Yeah, I think one of the things that we ought to point out here, too, is that um, for those of us who have been on a, a cruise, um, you know, that immediately you're going to be given uh, um, uh, safety drills on how to put on a life jacket, where your life jacket is located and where you're supposed to assemble in the immediate need of an emergency, you know, that uh, these cabins are going to go to this lifeboat, these cabins are going to go to that lifeboat. In theory. Assembly (laughs) assembly areas. Well, uh, the SS Morrow didn't have any of that. Uh, The captain, um, he was kind of a you know, he didn't want any of that negativity to get in the way of having a good time. So they, they their life, their life saving drills were non-existent, and the life jackets, if you if you did able to find one, um, were just canvas life jackets that would tie around your waist, and the flotation device was uh, a cork billet. Um, but you had to be instructed on properly how to use this because yeah, everyone slept through that when yeah, you were boarding. Because if you just put the life jacket on, thinking I'm good to go, and you jump in the water, the thing is going to immediately fly off of you if you're not holding it down around the neck to hold those billets down. Otherwise, those cork billets, when they hit the water, would pop up, and knock you underneath the chin and knock you out and now you're floating in the water face down <laughs> not a good now you're unconscious floating down and that's if you're lucky enough the that the fucking thing didn't break your neck or didn't break your neck upon impact yeah, yeah. And, and the jump uh it would, it would vary from where you're jumping from but it's a 30 to 50 foot jump into the water mm. and you're jumping into into in a black abyss so, you thought uh, action park was dangerous yeah right that's, there you go yeah worst uh worst cruise ever so uh, you were mentioning earlier too that uh, the lifeboats are—they are trying to get people out on here. They have twelve of them on board the ship. Uh, you want to guess how many made it out? Uh, I don't have to guess because I know. <laughs> yep, six. <laughs> six. Also known as a failing grade. So, <laughs> That's right. Fifty percent uh, is not good. Yeah. So these uh, these people are it. It's going from bad to worse pretty quickly. Only six of the Morrow Castle's 12 lifeboats get launched. Crew members are tossing life jackets, wooden chairs, anything they can find that will float in an attempt to try to give people that did jump something for them to at least cling to. Some of the crew members. Um, some accurate. of the Some of the accurate. crew members, the first thing that they did was save yourself. Because <laughs> when, you, when you start counting up 
um, the people that actually got into the lifeboats and made it safely to shore. Uh, it was a, a telling tale there. I'll let you continue, though. Down to be fair, though, there's also other members of the crew that were reportedly extremely brave in attempting to combat the fire Absolutely. still. So, uh, but again, that's them's not good odds uh, when six out of the 12 lifeboats. And remember, we this is this fire is intense here. We said, imagine going on a cruise with four people and uh, knowing that one of the four is not going to live through the end of uh, the cruise. Right. That's them's not good odds. That's the either. end of the cruise for you. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we only lost two people out in Vegas when I was out there. So just <laughs> right. by comparison, good <laughs> old Tristan right. Vedrero getting paddled over at uh, whatever that insane asylum place we was where the the heart attack grill. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. Anyone wants that video? Uh, Tristan, I know is a regular listener, so I'm more than happy to put that up on the Patreon as well, guys. <laughs> but. Now, the uh, uh, other crew members attempting to fight the blaze, other crew members getting out of Dodge. All right. The lifeboats, interestingly enough, as you said, Dad, are going to wind up containing mostly crew members. So of the 408 person capacity of the lifeboats, they were only filled with 85 people, which is less than a quarter. So four boats. Uh, that's pretty much the shit show that's going on board the SS Moro Castle. I'm about to get into the rescue effort here. Did you have anything else before we dive into that? No, I'll, I'll say that other stuff that I have to, towards the end. Here. Oh, we're going to set you up for Alex Jones conspiracy theory time. Okay. All right. But uh, the lifeboats, like we said, trying to get out of here. Now, new boats are going to get involved in the fracas here. Um, four boats will take part in the rescue operation. And I say take part loosely, dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the SS Luckenbach showed up first, uh, but even then they were considered to have a slow response because like we said, only one SOS went out. So it's like, hey, you know, we probably would have heard more from them. Do, you, do we really need to change the course of our entire ship uh, in order to, to investigate what p potentially is just a, a butt dial for an SOS call? So anyway, the, uh, the Luckenbach shows up. It's uh, slow, if you will, but uh, slow is fast when other people are slower. You know what I mean? So uh, the other two ships that are going to show up even slower than that uh, are the SS City of Savannah and the SS Monarch of Bermuda, which uh, would be considered fashionably late, I guess we'll call it. But the worst sh rescue ship involved by far, um, this is this is my favorite little weird loser reception we have here. Uh, if you've been with the show since day one, you would know that our very first episode, we covered a certain president who is the only president that ever served two non-consecutive terms. OK. And that guy's name is Grover Cleveland. And this ship that shows up and and really puts the emphasis on the loser part of the Morrow Castle tale is named after President Grover Cleveland. <laughs> so The SS Grover Cleveland. Yeah. The SS Grover Cleveland, our very first episode, uh, He's this boat is going to hold the crown when it comes to being a real piece of shit. Um, so get a load of this. The Cleveland arrives on scene, drops its motorboat, its little rescue boat, if you will, uh, and does a patrol around the waters surrounding the SS Morrow Castle. They, they can see what's going on. There's, you know, the boat's on fire. Uh, this is really, I mean, what a, a sight to, to behold, if you will, you know. I mean, just the thing's spooky looking uh, in the, the burned out remnants of it. But now imagine you're seeing – imagine seeing the Titanic as it's going down. And uh, this guy's got his motorboat and he's driving around the boat looking for passengers or anything like that. Maybe somebody he can rescue. Doesn't see anybody or at least says he doesn't see anybody. And then they pack up their motorboat and go home. Yep. We're out of here. Should we hang out for a little bit? No, 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 no man. No, no. Yeah, it looks like these guys have it all under control here. Oh, Grover. I don't know why I'm making it uh, – <laughs> 
I don't know why I'm doing the uh, the, the Cheers voice right now with Cliff Clavin. Hey, it looks like everything's okay over here. <laughs> yeah. But now they, uh, this is how intense it is too. How the hell can they just abandon them and leave like this? Because, I mean, it gets wild. The, the Coast Guard ships wind up being too far away that they can't see anything because you have these super high waves coming through. Right. So they can't see anything going on out there. The ship's pitch black. The only light coming from the ship is going to be the flames itself. Yeah, for some people on the shore, they could see like a glow way out into the ocean. and But that was on, off, on, off again because of the, the tossing of the waves and everything else. But, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a bad situation. And actually, uh, a, a, a good part of the rescue effort came to some of the local New Jersey fishermen that uh, a lot of guys just jumped aboard their, their fishing vessels and went out there, a small craft that went out there to, uh, a, uh, a to flotilla. save whoever yeah. they could. Right. A little puddle pirate uh, so army, if you will. There was an absolute uh, heroic effort by the civilian population of the surrounding communities to uh, see who they could fish out of the water. Well, like we said, you're off the coast of the Jersey Shore here. So now the Coasties, the Coast Guard, that is, the two ships, they're not seeing anything. The Coast Guard, uh, Coast Guard Air Station, located in Cape May, New Jersey, they don't even bother getting involved until reports are coming in of, I swear to God, we are not exaggerating here, dead bodies are washing up on the shore from Point Pleasant to Spring Lake. All right? It's a... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's something happened when you got dead bodies washing up on the beach. Yeah, it's a little uh, bad for tourism too. Right, Let's be honest. This is local summer. Well, luckily, um, you know, it was after Labor Day, so the the, <laughs> the big crowds aren't on the beach anymore. But uh, yeah, it's still a little upsetting to uh, see a dead body wash up on the beach. Well, the dead bodies that washed up uh, on Belmar actually were given tickets for not having beach badges displayed, <laughs> and the go. cops responded to unauthorized visitors with a DUI checkpoint. So <laughs> you're in violation, DJ is closed go home <laughs> but you know it's bad this is how you know it's bad when the governor has to get involved himself uh new jersey governor at the time a guy by the name of uh, a harry moore pilots his own plane this this i really thought that somebody was messing with this when i read this um but yeah governor moore pilots his own personal plane around the ship in order to drop markers and attempt to id survivors so that now that small flotilla of all these fishing vessels and the, the locals kind of a thing that they see a marker drop down and they know, okay, cool, there's people over here. So he was, you know, the governor is literally, I, I try to picture Chris Christie um, just driving a plane, but <laughs> it, it's immediately the tailspin theme song starts playing in my head. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, the governor's getting involved here. He's got a heroic effort going on. The local fishermen are doing more work than the Coast Guard. These actual boats that went out there, they're like, yeah, whatever. I mean, I guess we'll help you. So. Thank God for the local, uh, the, the good old people of the Jersey Shore getting themselves involved. But uh, by the way, A. Harry Moore, uh, you'd think a governor risking his own life to pilot a rescue mission uh, to save a disastrous shipwreck in his own state. You'd think that would have made him famous enough. But no, this gets glossed over because he is uh, the governor uh, and winds up presiding over the crime of the century in a loserception, folks, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Yeah, same governor. Yep. Governor Moore heavily involved with that one. That's where his, he's remembered in the history books for that one. So, again, it's kind of weird where that's what we know that guy for. But, oh, by the way, he also uh, – it's like finding out that Caitlyn Jenner was also an Olympic athlete once. You're like, oh, shit, really? <laughs> he's a hands-on governor. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, by mid-morning now, the ship is completely abandoned. Okay. The beaches are full of volunteers and professionals. They're trying to triage the disaster here. The ship still on fire. I'm not making this next part up, guys. You can look at the photos and prove this is now beached itself right up alongside Convention Hall in Asbury Park. 
So yeah, another another uh, bad turn of events is uh, the captain tried to drop the anchor chain to uh, stop the uh, forward motion because actually no, I shouldn't say forward motion. He was dead in the water at this point because they lost all power and and all steering capabilities. And then the Coast Guard shows up and tries to tow them. Um, he cuts the uh, the anchor, and then the tow line snaps. And now this thing is floating towards Asbury Park. And there was a radio station within Convention Hall at Asbury that was definitely in, a feared that the ship was actually going to ram Convention Hall. It, it came it came that close. Jesus. And then at the last moment, it, it took a turn and it beached itself. Uh, I guess a couple hundred feet off the off the shoreline of uh, Convention Hall. Yeah. Convention Hall was a major major tourist attraction at the time. This too. is back so, when Asbury was the the Asbury jewel of the Atlantic. Was, yeah, Asbury was big time uh, um, oceanside uh, resort. Uh, one of the reasons why is because that's where the trains would uh, drop a lot of the New York City folk uh, off. That you could get a train ride to Asbury and then spend the day at the beach and then take a train ride home. Um, but yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that became a, a major tourist attraction, uh, the the Hulk of the SS uh, Morrill Castle. Well, again, the good people at Jersey getting involved and uh, you know rescue efforts and you know trying to you know makeshift hospitals and treatments on the shore. So I want to emphasize the good on that. Before we get into Jersey's got a reputation for putting out some sleaze bag types. So this is important to mention right here. Uh, Creepily enough, by the way, I don't want to forget this either. The where the SS Morrow Castle kind of ran aground, if you will, or finally stopped, uh, is almost the exact same location of another earlier famous shipwreck of a ship called the New Era. Right. So imagine that. That's your, you know, boom, right then and there. The New Era is wild. That was an old uh, wood ship. That I don't think there's any photos of that one, Ming, but it was uh, where the New Era ship crashed. And it's now the same spot that the SS Morrow Castle is pretty much on. So you want to talk about a haunted little area? Uh, Asbury Park's got old bones, as uh, Cousin Kate would say, right? Yep. That, uh, so it can be a creepy town sometimes in its own right. A lot of cool history down there. A lot of good comedy scene too, actually. Um, but yeah, that's uh, you want to talk about a spot, pick your spot, man. That, that is your highway mile marker right there. Oh, that's where all the boats keep crashing and everyone dies on. So I'd be spooked out by that. I wouldn't want to go anywhere near it. Uh, but the ship... Now, the Morrow Castle is still on fire. It's going to burn for another two days. So imagine seeing Convention Hall. There's a giant ghost ship, this burned out thing. And then, oh, by the way, it's still on fire. So maybe it's a good thing it didn't hit Convention Hall. Otherwise, uh, Convention Hall might have gone up in flames uh, accordingly. But again, burning for two more days. In the end, here's your final uh, tally, if you will. Um, 135 of the 549 passengers and crew members on board died in the fire. Okay. Uh, imagine, like I said, going on a cruise with four people and knowing at least one of you isn't going to make it home. So that's you, me, dad, uh, mm. Ming and Kahuna. And we just tell Kahuna. Well, Kahuna's not here, yep, so he's out. He didn't make it. <laughs> it's, uh, well, uh, the ship We is, all took a vote. Kahuna, you're out. Yeah, Kahuna, you're out. We're sorry, buddy. That's You're off the island. You're <laughs> off the ship. Well, uh, the ship is declared a total loss. But the sight of a burned, ghostly shipwreck in Asbury Park made quite the impact. Kids and adults alike are wading out into the water in order to go out and touch the ship. Uh, yeah, that's. I don't know if I'd want to do that. Um, now I went with you know cousin Rich and uh, his wife Jen. They took me to see a, a boat that washed up on shore um, somewhere in Point, I think. And that was just a cool, weird thing to look at, just to see it as it was. Um, 
But no one died in that. That was just a little mishap. That was a whoops kind yeah. of thing. This is, again, hundreds of people are dead. You know what I mean? And people are like, oh, well, so I'm going to go out there and touch the ship. You won't touch the ship. Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville. Welcome back to the SS Morrow Castle. Yeah. So, uh, but it's bad news out there, man. Of course, because it's Jersey, they start again. We have a sick sense of humor in this state. Sightseeing tours, including souvenirs and commemorative coins, are soon being uh, presented out there that, you know, guys trying to sell uh, T-shirts. Uh, I survived the SS Morrow Castle and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really extending the season here, too. I mean, uh, Labor Day is already over, so the tourist season, for the most part, at the Jersey Shore is done. But now this happens uh, in the beginning of September, so we're extending that season. And actually, there was reports that the founding, the town fathers of Asbury wanted to buy the Hulk from the ward line uh, just to use it as a tourist attraction. Because people are, are driving and they're coming into Asbury by the droves to see this uh, burning Hulk and then later on uh, to um, – you know, as you say, go out and touch it, and they're, some, they're selling souvenirs and everything else. A lot of the locals saying, you know, we we cannot, we cannot make, uh, we cannot have the, the the town buy this thing and make this um, disaster a tourist attraction kind of a thing. So, it, you know, oh that, yeah, because somebody would probably try to start a comedy show in the, yeah. the burnt out. It's wreckage right. comedy, yeah. moral comedy show. Yeah. Um, Putting a slide that, in, maybe a little you know tiki bar inside of the thing. You, you wait on out to the the burnt out hull of the SS Morrow yeah, Castle. Do, well, we could uh, send people out there for the ghost walk at night. And, oh, uh, not Larry yeah, Burke. Right? You're figuring it out. Yep. So I mean, there's there was money to be made, but uh, um, actually, I think the ship did remain there for another six months. It did. I'm going to wrap this one part of it up. Then I have a a fun little. Um, uh, nugget or two that I want to throw in here, but we're about to set you up for what you came up with on the deep dive, which is rather unsettling. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, people are wading out to the water, touching the ship. There's a, there literally is probably a ghost tour of some sort going on over here. Um, but March of 1935, the wreckage is finally towed away where uh, some accounts have the stern beginning to sink during the operation. It's declared a total loss. Uh, the insurance money came through pretty good on that. But uh, the other thing is that it also somebody was saying that they took it to Brooklyn and that they wanted – the people of Brooklyn wanted to be like, oh, if you couldn't make it down to the Jersey Shore, we'll, we'll bring it to you. That's right. <laughs> you know, the SS Morrow Castle. We'll, we'll go on tour. <laughs> really? Yeah. World that's, tour. Oh, that's embarrassing that this boat has had more tour dates than I have as a comedian this year. Thank you, 2020. But uh, anyway, I want to wrap that one up here because um, that is essentially on paper the story of the SS Morrow Castle. Lawrence Patrick, hmm. what did you find? Oh, I, it's, it's, we could do another, at least another hour, but I'll try to keep this as brief as I can possibly make it. But there's all kinds of coinky-dinks here going on. Uh, first off, the SS uh, Morrill Castle was uh, built with government money. Um, in 1928, um, they passed a Merchant Marine Act. Uh, where they're trying to build up the ships. Now, again, we're we're talking about um, the first part of the of the twentieth uh, century. So we're trying to build up the Merchant Marine. This cruise line is part of the uh, Merchant Marine Act. So um, the Ward Line um, is the owner or or contracts with government subsidies to build these two ships, the uh, Oriente and the SS Morro Castle. Um, 
The Ward Line would later become known as the New York and Cuba Mail Steamship Company. That's important because there was other mishaps that we happened to have with the Ward Line. But the Ward Line initially was a very successful kind of a thing. So 1928, we got this uh, Merchant Marine Act. Um, they contract to build the uh, the SS uh, Morro Castle. Uh, it's primarily 75% of that is government money. Uh, but then in 1929, we had a stock market crash. So, <laughs> whoops. So you're going to have this luxury uh, liner already underway, already being built. It's launched in, in the 30, but we, by the time it's launched, we're already in the, into the depression. So we still got prohibition going on, so we can still make some bucks on this. And they were modestly successful with running these uh, trips back and forth to uh, to Cuba. Um, and now, Cuba, stable, you know, very stable place to be operating out of. Oh, a yeah. lot of good stuff going Cuba, on there. Cuba had some, some different shit going on down there, too, that we were a little um, concerned about. Um, the thing was originally built for 489 passengers and a crew of 240. So total uh, body count it was designed for, it was 729. Um, so they were not at capacity on, on the, uh, the night that the, the ship burnt uh, on uh, September the 8th and 34. Um, things were not going real well for the ward line. Again, we're in the depression. Um, prohibition was just repealed the year before. So the, the lure of the running these booze cruises and stuff um, hey, it's still a booze cruise, but it's not the only game in town. It's now. not the only game in town. We can I can stay home and drink. Um, during the twenties, there's service reduction. There's poor management of the ward line. Um, they're trying to rehabilitate an aging fleet, and there's some speculation that the the ward line, the company, is nearly bankrupt, uh, and if it had not been for the subsidies from the government. Um, the, the company would not have been uh, resuscitated, if you will, to come back to life. Um, but, you know, these two cruise lines are built. Um, the crew, <laughs> the crew was not trained at all. Um, again, we're in the middle of the Depression. So half the crew was working for basically um, uh, food uh, and lodging that um, they were definitely underpaid. Um, even the more experienced crew. Sounds like a road comedian's life, if you ask me. Yeah. It, um, you know, they were definitely cutting it down to the bare bones. Um, um, some of the crew were being would have been paid on a similar rate that what the government was paying the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was a government program. So, I mean, to be under minimum wage would be, uh, you know, a lot. Um, so, and ver the turnover rate within the crew was extremely high. So, and, and it was a disgruntled crew. Um, Always good. And actually, um, the captain, Captain Wilmot, the night that he died, just prior to his not feeling well and not going to dinner, uh, was complaining to other officers that, um, there's something going on and there's something bad going to happen here because I got this disgruntled crew. Uh, you know, things are it's not a happy ship, at least amongst the crew. Um, so he was a little concerned about 
some um, some bad things happening. Um, they have this radio man. I actually have a couple people. This guy's the this, yeah. Room. This this is if you wanted to find the person that's the loser involved with this one. I'm going to go ahead and say that it's the radio guy. It's the radio guy. There's a, a guy, a radio man. Uh, George White Rogers is the radio man, and he's got a a real checkered past. But he's hired by the ward line to be in the radio room. There's also another guy, another George, a George Alanga, who is the assistant radio man. Now, George Rogers, um, the the head radio guy, refuses to send out that SOS unless it's direct captain's orders. Jesus. So that's why there was such a lag from the time Wilmot dies, Warms, William Warms is now the captain in charge. He doesn't send out that SOS until 30 minutes after the fire was first reported. Um, and like we said, 20 minutes is all it takes. Right? And, and, so. and this thing was windswept from uh, front to back in that amount of time that the whole thing is up in flames. Why is it up in flames in such a short time? Well, there was a number of different things. Um, every surface uh, covered within the ship was probably uh, veneered wood, which is really sparky. I mean, that goes up real quick. Um, well, originally, they were going to build it out of matches. So, <laughs> yeah, was, it was safer. Yeah, safety matches weren't <laughs> weren't uh, used as the, as the veneer, but uh, it was just as, as flammable. Um, you know, we don't have a, uh, the, the regulations controlling as to what the, the ship might have been built from, non-flammable materials. So we've got this veneered wood. What's the veneered wood uh, finished with? Uh, lacquer and varnish that is, is highly flammable. Uh, if it was a painted surface, it's a flammable paint um, that is being used. You got ineffective fire doors. Although you have fire doors on there, what's surrounding the fire doors is wood. So <laughs> what good is the door if the, the surrounding uh, thing holding the door is going to be burnt up? Um, the fire breaks out initially in this writing room, in this closet of this writing room. Um, right above that, the next deck up is a storage locker that contains this Lyle gun. Now, a Lyle gun is basically a small cannon that would be able to fire a safety line either to the shore or oh, to another shit. ship. But what propels the Lyle gun? Gunpowder. So when the fire breaks out in the closet underneath the Lyle gun, the gunpowder just above it explodes and that sends you know, sparks and So it's like building a campfire, but you <laughs> accidentally did it on a ship. <laughs> right. You got the, the gallon of gas a little too close to the campfire. Jesus. Um, so uh, the uh, there's fire hydrants. There's definitely fire hydrants on board. There's 42 fire hydrants on board. But if you use more than six at any one time, the water pressure goes down to near zero. Uh, the crew was never informed of that. The crew was never trained on how to fight the fire in the first place. So even those guys who did try to fight it, if you're turning on those fire hydrants and everybody's trying to fight it at the same time, your water pressure is going down to zero. So basically you're you're dealing there with a you're, – you're trying to pee the fire out or squirt uh, gun the fire out. Been there. So um, the lifeboats, yeah, there's 12 lifeboats, which would have been enough to save everybody. However, only six were able to be deployed into the water. Again, the ward line was such on a uh, cutback 
um, schedule that no fine, no money was being paid. That, and this thing was constantly running uh, cruises back and forth. <laughs> that any downtime, um, if there was any imperfection or any um, maintenance issue, paint it. Um, if there's a crack, paint over it. Time is um, money, buddy. The, the chains on the lifeboats... They had to look nice because this is a first-class ship, so we have to make it look nice. So, Kev, what did what did they tell you in the Navy? If it don't move, it shouldn't. <laughs> if it don't move, paint it, and if it does move, salute it. Right. So, um, the chains on these lifeboats were painted over so many times that they were rendered inoperative. That when they tried to lower the lifeboats, they were so gummed up with uh, uh, paint and everything Jesus. else that they couldn't possibly lower the lifeboats. Um, so yeah, there was a, a just a shit show from from start to finish. Um, finally, uh, George Rogers, the head radio man, does receive the direct command because if he's following the letter of of naval law, you don't send out the SOS unless you're directly told by the captain to send out that SOS. Thirty minutes later, he finally gets the direct order to send out this. Uh, SOS. I bet signal. it was calm too. Hey, did you get a chance to send out that SOS by chance? Yeah, and a lot of that is is being blamed on George Alanga, the assistant radio man, because he was the guy that was supposed to go up and see the captain and deliver the message back down to go ahead and send the SOS. And he and just George Alanga was also labeled as a, a potential troublemaker because he was trying to uh, um, organize some of the crew to. Uh, get better wages. So, you know, is he a communist? Is he a union leader? Is, you know, he's he's a high a high suspect. Um, finally, George rouser. Rogers does send out the one SOS message that does go out, and he burns his fingers because he stayed on board ship right up to the last minute. There was like twelve crew members who stayed on board for as long as they possibly could before they abandoned ship. And, you know, he burnt his fingers and you know, he um, later on is is labeled as this this big hero um, who finally was able to, you know, fighting the flames and, and was able to send out this SOS message. Um, uh, there's certainly a big inquiry as to how this whole thing started and why it started and why it's such a, a great disaster on this kind of a thing. Um, immediately, uh, just George Langa is one of the guys that's fingered as he's the bad guy. He's the bad guy. Scapegoat. Right. And and uh, the other George, George Rogers, the radio man, is painted as the big hero because he, you know, he risked his own life to stay on board and sends out the final, the only SOS message that did goes out. He goes on to become the big hero. He actually goes on to Broadway and starts delivering speeches and recounting the tale of his, his heroism and everything else. So he's painted as the as the big guy. When you start doing some background checks on this guy. This guy is definitely, definitely uh, a bad guy. Um, uh, it's later found out that um, he previously had a record of arson himself that uh, later inquiries kind of picture this George Rogers, the head radio man, is really the bad guy behind this whole thing. Um, so they say he started his own radio company, wasn't doing so well, and then there was a mysterious fire where he gained the uh, the insurance money from that. Um, yeah, background checks, not really back, diligent background back Background checks, right. 
And then it's um, there's some suspicion. There's all kinds of suspicion, uh, different uh, scenarios being placed here that the ward line hired this guy um, as their radio man with the intention of having him set the fire so they could collect the insurance money on a ship that was already at that point in time starting to lose money. Shady. So, so was was that the situation? Um, it's like killing Piomai in season four of The Sopranos. Uh, this guy, uh, George Rogers, um, as I said, he's got a history of arson. Um, he's a, initially after the, uh, the disaster, he's painted as a hero. But then when they, again, they start to do some further research on this guy and uh, they find out that after the SS Morrow disaster, he then um, starts up his own radio company again. That doesn't go well. And it mysteriously burns down. He then uh, takes on a job with a um, a police uh, agency, and um, with the police, um, he is working within their radio department, if will, if you will. And um, there's a, a, a lieutenant within the the police department that. Um, Starts, you know, chatting this guy up a little bit and really starts to get a little suspicious about, um, you know, what exactly did did happen on the SS Morrow. And then um, there's a package delivered to this police lieutenant um, from the police uh, company that he's working for. There's a package delivered to the guy and uh, it was like an aquarium heater. And when he plugs it in to supposedly repair it. Um, it blows up and loses a couple of fingers. <laughs> Who sent him the package? Uh, George Rogers sent him the package. No shit. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, <laughs> was was that more? Uh, was that Rogers' attempt to silence this police lieutenant who was getting a little too close to the truth? Um, he is uh, convicted. He's sent to uh, New Jersey State Prison. Um, and then uh, he is uh, released um, for good behavior, supposedly. He then goes to work for the U.S. Navy because now we're in the middle of the Second World War. And he becomes a radio man for the Navy. Um, and then he's dishonor dishonorably discharged from the Navy for um, insubordination and a couple of other things. Uh, he goes back to civilian life. Uh, Ming brought a photo up of him too. Yeah. Uh, he kind of looks like. Guy. <laughs> he, how does he look like both honeymooners at the same time? <laughs> That's unsettling. Um, he then uh, starts up again in civilian life uh, and then has a little fracas with a neighbor where he bludgeons his neighbor to death and his neighbor's daughter to death. He's sent to prison again. And then uh, later on, he uh, dies under mysterious circumstances in prison. Uh, some say it was a brain hemorrhage. Some say it was a heart attack. They're really it's a brain sure. hemorrhage caused by this wrench. Yeah. And then there's a, um, an author, who, uh, a New Jersey author, who tries to write a book about the SS Morrow uh, Castle and starts to delve into... Um, this guy, uh, George Rogers, and is a blocked. I mean, we're, we're already past the Freedom of Information Act, and he's uh, 
asking the feds for information on this guy and he's getting stonewalled and goes to, uh, you know, sues the federal government for this inf- release of this information and, and everything else. Um, it, it's definitely looking real, real shady that more and more uh, suspicion is coming on to George Rogers as being the guy who actually set the fire. And also, you know, was the, was the captain murdered or not? Well, um, and was the fire set to cover up the, the captain's murder? Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the true story is really starting to come out here. And then mysteriously, I found reports that uh, any of his New Jersey state prison records um, uh, are lost, that mysteriously they can't find that on, in, in his Navy like records. Like a Hudson County birth certificate. <laughs> we just don't know. That's right. And uh, so a lot of his Navy records are also uh, mysteriously lost. And what was what I found from one source was that uh, there was only two people whose records were lost from the New Jersey State Prison. One was this uh, George White Rogers, the radio man, and the other one was Herr Hauptman from the Lindbergh Baby. No shit. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it is another loser reception for you there. So um, two famous, uh, two famous. Um, Jersey villains. Guests of yeah. the New Jersey State Prison. Jesus. Um, their records were lost. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, in a very briefly, again, we could do a whole, we could do a whole um, podcast just on uh, George White Rogers with his, with his whole background. But, um, you know, it wasn't any uh, spontaneous combustion or anything else. Uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion that Mr. Rogers was the guy that, uh, Tried to initially blame the other George, George Alanga, his assistant, but uh, the guy, the true culprit was uh, George Rogers. Different kind of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Yeah, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Yeah. Jesus. Be my neighbor. Nah, I don't think so. Not today. Being oh. the last neighbor that you had, you're bludgeoned to death. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I don't think I want to be Mr. That, that Mr. Rogers' neighbor. No, man. This is uh, this is nuts. Did you have anything else? Because we got to land this plane. Um, yeah, no, I think that's. Uh, that's pretty. Oh, the only the only other thing. <laughs> Told you. I'm got, sorry, Ming. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I got to throw it in here because uh, I'm just such a fan. Uh, the Ward line was definitely involved, uh, as I say, for a long time with with Cuba and Mexico. Um, the Ward line also owned a, a previous uh, a cruise ship called the City of Washington. The City of Washington. That ship happened to be in Havana Harbor at the same time when the USS Maine blew up. And that was another lose reception that we had with the USS Maine. Uh, actually, the city of Washington helped uh, some of the rescue efforts of the USS Maine. Um, that really prompted the whole Spanish-American War. Um, and then the U.S. government chartered a lot of uh, U.S. Uh, chartered a lot of their ships in order to transport U.S. Army forces to Cuba in order to fight the Spanish-American War in Cuba. And it was a Ward Line ship, the SS Yucatan, that transported Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Yep. See, it all comes back in, (laughs) guys. It all comes back to Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. And then there was a, I got to end it too, another Roosevelt that was a suspect in this whole uh, Marl Castle thing. It's either FDR, Eleanor, or uh, the uh, well, this Shemp one, this Roosevelt. This one happened to be FDR because there was a lot of suspicion cast on the 
SS Morrow that it was secretly running guns and munitions back and forth to Cuba to help the revolutionaries at the time. So we're in 1934. So the revolutionaries at that particular time happened to be the sergeant's revolution. And there was a guy by the name of Batista who would be making a name for himself in Cuban history that uh, FDR was uh, involved somehow or other with um, getting um, uh, arms and, and uh, munitions, as I say, to the revolutionaries in Cuba. And FDR immediately recognized the Batista government once they did overthrow the government, uh, the Cuban government at the time. Um, and it was also uh, FDR's administration that once the trial came up as to find out you know, who's who's responsible for the deaths of all these people aboard the uh, Morrow Castle, um, the captain at the time and the engineer and the vice president of the ward line. They were all exonerated that, uh, you know, they were found guilty, but then later exonerated in, in federal court um, and in, in the appeals court. So was there, you know, governmental collusion in this whole thing? Ah, good word. You collusion. Know, collusion. Uh, um, you know, is that... Uh, is that really what happened? That uh, because of the, the secret, the government secrets, that uh, we couldn't find these guys guilty, that we'd have to uh, take care of them. And it turned the freaking frogs gay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No man, that was awesome. Uh, thank you for the the deep dive on that one. We again on the surface, it always looks like this is going to be a pretty straightforward show, and then we find some weird shit, guys. So, and as Ming said, you know it's going to be a good day when the weird New Jersey paper pops up. So uh, that's what old Lawrence Patrick was doing some <laughs> well, research. That was in one there. of my bits of information. Weird New Jersey, uh, very true. The mystery of the Morrow Castle, but yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, this was a fun one for me, man. I'm excited about this. We have a couple other, uh, we have all Halloween themed episodes of this month. So if you want to check us out over on the Patreon, uh, make the jump, guys. Go check us out over there. It's uh, uh, only a couple limited spots left on the initial founding losers. Once it hits 56, I'm going to take a screenshot of everybody who's on there. And we got some merch coming your way, folks. All right. We want to say thank you very much for everything that you guys do for us. Thank you to Mike and Ming over at Shared Universe Podcast Studio in Eatontown, New Jersey, where they take great care of us. Um, to the Kahuna, at what Whatever point of your spiritual journey you are on, as he walks around uh, learning kung fu, uh, That's right, kung fighting, fu panda. yeah, fight, <laughs> <laughs> roadside fighting. Um, now uh, we'll get the Kahuna back in here eventually, man. So, uh, but Ming, thank you very much for the Saturday you gave us here, guys. Check us out. Uh, that is going to be uh, it for us this week. But the Patreons where all the actions at. We'll see you every Tuesday for a free episode. You can feel free to check me out at, at KP Burke Sucks on uh, Instagram. Uh, American Loser Podcast on Instagram. KP Burke over here just on uh, the old Facebook. That's where I promote all the uh, upcoming dates and stuff like that. So uh, according to the calendar, I don't do comedy anymore. So that's over. But now um, hopefully we'll get a couple more things pe penciled in there. But go ahead and uh, support live comedy if you can, guys. Uh, and I think I'm done here, right, LP? We're out. Guys, that was the SS Morrow Castle, American Loser. An American Loser the day I was born. American loser the day I was born An American loser the day I was born